Blog Talk Radio. Psalm 82, a psalm of Asaph. God standeth in the congregation of the mighty. He judgeth among the gods. How long will ye judge unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked? Selah. Defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Rid them out of the hand of the wicked. They know not, neither will they understand. They walk on in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are out of course. I have said, Ye are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High. But ye shall die like men, and fall like one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for thou shalt inherit all nations. Well, good morning, everyone. This is Kennard speaking. I'm your host for the uh, Merciful Servants of God, a biblical instructional program. Uh, today is April 7, 2010, and give me about 30 seconds. I'll be right back. Okay, sorry about that. I had to get my headpiece uh, straightened out there. Yes, April 7, 2012, and for those who celebrated, celebrated rather Pesach or Passover, I hope you had a wonderful feast, a festive meal that reflected on the Messiah and his sufferings and the type of sufferings that we have to, to go through because he did state that we must also take up our cross as well. And I don't think too many people really focus on what he said about this journey, this journey toward perfection. In Matthew chapter 10, starting in verse 38 in the um, King James Version, uh, actually, I'm going to go to Matthew chapter 10, verse 37. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And then Matthew 10, verse 38. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. So just like he, he suffered and had to be put on a cross around 3 o'clock. Well, actually, um, it was earlier than, than 3 o'clock he was put on a cross, but he died around 3 o'clock at the same time that the uh, Passover lambs were sacrificed because in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7, he was the Passover that year, uh, symbolically. So anyway, we have to remember that, that we also have to suffer just like he did. Passover is about that as well in addition to, of course, his blood canceling or taking away the death penalty that we all deserve because of sin. So in this Bible study, we're going to talk about first fruits or Yom Bikarim, which is the day of the wave sheaf. I'm going to talk about that. But before I get into that, I want to make some clarifications uh, last week in regards to what I talked. Just some clarification so you'll understand a little little bit in detail. 
Now, the Bible study I did last week, and I encourage you to listen to it, but I'm going to hopefully make it even better here by summarizing uh, some important points. I know some those people that may be listening to me that were a part of um, the Armstrong churches and, and so forth, and that may be a part of United Church and uh, the other splinter churches or the uh, spinoff churches from Mr. Armstrong, they taught, and I found out that it's an incorrect teaching that Passover begins on the evening of the 13th, the, the 13th day of the month, at even. And that's incorrect. And there is a scripture that proves emphatically that that's incorrect. Let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 16. I didn't make this clear for whatever reason last week, <laughs> but I'm going to make it clear now. All right, so Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 1. It says observe, and I went over that last week. That means to observe the moon, look at the new moon. And I explained that how that's being done now by the Karaites and certain other Jews and certain other people that believe or understand that that's what we need to do uh, to follow God's calendar, Elohim's calendar, instead of the Jewish calculated calendar. Now, I don't make a big deal about that. The Jewish calendar calculates the new moon observation. And this year it was calculated correctly. That's the reason why all the holy days, it appears, this year will fall on the Jewish calendar and God's calendar, which is based on the Bible, on the same days, which is uh, kind of convenient. And uh, I like when that does happen. That's the way it's supposed to be anyway. But anyway, the crescent or the little sliver of light on the, on the moon after when, when when there's a new moon first of all you can't even see the new moon and the following day you'll see a little light which is a little sliver of light and once that occurs then the next day is declared new moon day so that's how that operates and if you want more information about that, go to Karite Corner, K-A-R-I-T-E Corner, K-O-R-N-E-R, and, and he has a, some detailed articles about that. And then also Michael Root's website, Michael Root's Ministries. They teach that correctly about new moon observance. And I didn't go into detail about how the new moon should be observed, and I have this excellent book, that I suggest you read. It's called The Temple, Its Ministry and Services by Alfred Edersheim. Uh, he was a Messianic Jew. In other words, a Jew that believed in the Messiah. This book was written, uh, I think, in the 1800s. But anyway, there's a chapter here, if I can find it. I just I was just reading it. <laughs> All right, here, I think it's on page 229. 229. Yes, on page uh, 229, uh, the new moons, uh, the feast of the seventh month of or of trumpets or New Year's Day. And that's New Year's Day as far as secular New Year's Day for Jews. But the real, the real New Year's Day, the beginning of the year, is in the spring, which is usually in March or April, based on the Roman calendar. But anyway, he states here, scarcely any other festive season could have left so continuous an impress on the religious life of Israel as the new moons. 
recurring at the beginning of every month and marking it the solemn proclamation of the day by it is sanctified was intended to give a hallowed character to each moon, to each month rather while the blowing of the priest's trumpets and the special sacrifices brought was summoned as it were the lord's host to offer the tribute unto their exalted king and thus bring themselves into remembrance before him besides it was also a popular feast when families like that of david might celebrate their special annual sacrifice. You can look at this or write this down. 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 6 and verse 29, when the king gave a state banquet, that's 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 5, and then verse 24, and those who sought for instruction and edification resorted to religious meetings, such as Elijah seems to have held in 2 Kings 4, verse 23. So you had special meals, you had the blowing of trumpets, and you had uh, religious instruction on these days. Now, uh, if you can take the new moon day off, you should. But if you can't, it's not a Sabbath. People are teaching incorrectly because the scriptures, uh, there's some scriptures that link the Sabbath with the new moon. They assume that Jesus put their own thoughts into the scriptures that the new moon is a Sabbath. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that the new moon is a Sabbath day. So... But if you can take that day off, do it. If it's not going to hurt you financially, you should do it. Um, and so we trace his observance onwards through the, the history of Israel, marking in, in Scripture a special psalm for the new moon. In psalm 81, verse 3. I talked about that last week, how people that are keeping a full moon are, are thinking that the new moon is a full moon. And I have this, this program that <laughs> shows you that the full moon is not the new moon, folks. Uh, you need to get this uh, program. It's called Quick Phase Pro. Google it. Quick Phase. Quick Phase Pro. That's Q U I C K P H A S E Pro. And if you look, if you get this program, you see that the full moon looks a whole lot different than the new moon. Okay, so we got to get educated here. But anyway, it says marking in scripture a special psalm for the new moon, noting how from month to month the day was kept as an outward ordinance, even in the decay of religious life. And this is Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 13. Apparently, all the more rigidly with abstinence from work, yes, they did do that back then, but again, that was something that was optional based on the scriptures. There's nowhere in the Bible that it commands you not to work on the new moon. Uh, not enjoining the law that his spirit was no longer understood. And then finally learning from the prophecies of Isaiah and Ezekiel, that, and this is on page 230 of this book, that it also had a higher meaning and was destined to find a better fulfillment in another dispensation. Now, I did explain to you that Jews, uh, they have taught, and I think they continue to teach today, that the new moon represents the hum humanity united, that we're all going to be united and keeping all of God's laws as one human race. And... It says, and was destined to find a better fulfillment in another dispensation when the new moon trumpet should summon all flesh to worship before Jehovah. Uh, Isaiah 66, verse 23. Let's turn there. This is a significant scripture to understand the significance of the new moon. The reason why the new moon is linked with Shabbat is because Shabbat is a feast day, and in Leviticus chapter 23, all the other holy days are like a Shabbat. And the new moon is the trigger. If you don't do new moon observation, then you won't know when to celebrate 
Elohim's or God's holy days. So that's that's the issue there. That's why the new moon is linked with the Shabbat. And the Shabbat really is uh, the foundation for all the other holy days, as Leviticus chapter 23 reveals. So Isaiah chapter 66 Starting in verse uh, 22. Yeah, I just want to uh, give you the little backdrop or background to this. Isaiah chapter 22 in the King James. For as the new heavens and the new earth which I will make, which means it hasn't been made yet, shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your seed and your name remain. Verse 23. And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another, so the new moon is not a Sabbath. It's a festive day, but it's not a Sabbath. And from one Sabbath to another shall all flesh come to worship before me, says the Lord. And this is what's going to happen, unfortunately, for those who don't want to keep the Shabbat, don't want to keep the new moons, don't want to keep uh, all the other day, uh, holy days or special days of Elohim. And they shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of the men that have transgressed against me. For their worm shall not die. Not them, but their worm. The worm that's going to be eating their bodies. There's going to be obviously enough bodies there for people to see what's going to happen to them if they don't want to, to keep the, the good traditions of Elohim, uh, the new moon, and Purim, Hanukkah, uh, all, all these other traditions that... that some people think that we shouldn't keep. You know, Purim, you should take off if you can. Hanukkah, you should take off. But they're not Sabbaths. But you still, there's nothing wrong with with uh, recognizing the day and, and having some kind of special meal or Bible study uh, in, re- in reference to those days. There's nothing wrong with that at all. That can be done. So anyway, Isaiah 66, verse 24, And they shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of the men that have transgressed against me, for their worms shall not die. Neither shall their fire be quenched, and they shall be an abhorring unto all flesh. So uh, Elohim is going to kill people that don't want to uh, keep the new moon, don't want to keep the Shabbat, don't want to keep the holy days. That's what he's going to do in the future. So, back to pages page 230. It says, when the new moon trumpet shall summon all flesh to, to worship before uh, Yahweh or Jehovah, and the closed eastern gates and the inner court of the new temple will be open once more to believing Israel. And in New Testament times, we still find a new moon kept as an outward observance by Jews and Judaizing Christians, yet expressly char- characterized as a shadow of things to come. So all the holy days and new moon observance is a shadow of things to come. The new moon symbolizes the, un- the, the humanity being one, Worshipping one God, one Elohim, and keeping all the holy days, including the new moon, which is 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 a it's a set apart day, but it's not a day that you um, stop working like the Sabbath. Now, if you can take it off, you should. But if you can't, it's going to hurt your family or <laughs> etc. Then you shouldn't do it. And there's nowhere in the Bible that states that the new moon is a Sabbath day, despite what some people are er 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 er
So I just wanted to clear, clarify that. And uh, you should be, if you if you want to start keeping a new moon, as the scriptures actually uh, suggest you do, uh, in Numbers um, chapter uh, 10 here. I forgot to show the scripture where it talked about uh, new moon observance here. It says, Numbers 10, verse 10 says, also in the day of your gladness and in your solemn days and in the beginnings of your months, which is new moons, you shall blow the trumpets over your burnt offerings and over the sacrifices of your peace offerings, that they may be to you a memorial before your God, I and the Lord your God. And so there were various offerings um, done on a new moon day. And let's turn to that. Numbers chapter 28, starting at verse 11. says, and in the beginning of your months, that's new moon again, you shall offer a burnt offering unto the Lord, two young bullocks and one ram, seven lambs of the first year without spot, and three-tenths deals of flour for a meat offering mingled with oil for one bullock, and two-tenths deals of flour for a meat offering mingled with oil for one ram, and a several-tenths deal of flour mingled with oil for a meat offering unto one lamb for a burnt offering of sweet flavor, a sacrifice made by fire unto the Lord. Okay, so you, you have all these offerings um, linked with the new moon. So that this is interesting that um, that this that, that that God desires for you to to sacrifice, and let's understand the real meaning of sacrifices, folks. Let's turn to Hebrews. I mean, we all, yeah, the sacrifice of Jesus, yes, but let's understand also what the sacrifices allude to as well. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15. By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Verse 16 of Hebrews chapter 13. But to do good and to communicate, and that word was not translated clearly in the King James Version. It means distribution, fellowship, participation. So it says, but to do good and to communicate, forget not, for which such sacrifices God is well pleased. So the sacrifices should, even back then, the sacrifices was a catalyst to influence the people of Israel, our ancient ancestors, to, to give. And what does Christ tell us to do in Luke chapter 6? Luke chapter 6, verse 38. He tells us, Give, and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down and shaken together and running over, shall men give unto your bosom. For with the same measure that ye meet with, with all, it shall be measured to you again. So on, on the new moon days, you should be seeking to give to somebody or to your Torah teacher, somebody. That's what you should be doing um, on New Moon Day. So I hope I've explained how to keep the new moons. And if you need a calendar or if you need more information about how to calculate when the new moon occurs, please email me at canard at mercifulservantsofgod.com and I'll give you information so you'll do what your Lord and Savior did. He kept a new moon, and you should as well. 
Again, many people don't understand this, but in 1 John chapter 2, verse 6, it plainly states the following. He that says he abides in him ought himself also to walk even as he walked. Yeshua, every Shabbat, walked into a Jewish synagogue. I would do that too if I was allowed to be in a synagogue, but I have a spiritual synagogue here um, in my home. Uh, so I'm spiritually doing what he did, and I'm, I'm keeping the Shabbat. I'm, I'm keeping all the Jewish traditions that he kept, and you should do the same. And it says right here in verse 3, And hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He that says, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. The truth is the entire teachings and doctrines of God, which Purim is included in, and also the new moon. Observance. Verse 5. But whosoever keep of his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Remember, he said in Matthew 4, verse 4, that we must live by every word of God. You don't leave some words out that are inconvenient for you. You you live by every word of God. Verse 5. But whosoever keep of his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby we know that we are in him. He that says he abides in him all to himself also he that says he abide in him ought himself also he that says he abide in him ought himself also so to walk even as he walked. Let's look at this in a easier version to read here. First John two verse six, uh, in the complete Jewish Bible version. A person who claims to be continuing in union with him ought to conduct his life the way he did. That's an excellent translation there. And that's what we need to do, folks. He said in John chapter four, I'm gonna keep on hammering this until you get it, okay, if you haven't gotten it already. John chapter 4, verse 20. Our fathers worship on this mountain, but you say that the place where one has to worship is in Jerusalem, or Jerusalem. Verse 21, Yeshua said, Lady, believe me, the time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this, more, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. And he was predicting the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. In verse 22, you people don't know what you are worshiping. We worship what we do know because salvation comes from the who? The Mormons, the Catholics, the Protestants, the Muslims, the Buddhists. No, the Jews. Verse 23. And he states here, but the time is coming, indeed is here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father spiritually and truly, for these are the kind of people the Father wants worshiping him. And people, I said, Jesus, this scripture to death. And they said, well, this means that uh, we don't have to keep the Sabbath, the holy days, nothing. We just do everything spiritually. Well, not, that's not what it's saying. Because if you understand what truth is, worshiping him in truth, truth, Psalm 119, verse 142. Let's turn there. Hold your place uh, in this scripture and turn. We're going to turn to Psalm 119, verse 142. says, your righteousness is eternal righteousness, and your Torah, which the word law in the, in the original uh, Hebrew means Torah, and it means that the entire teachings and doctrines of God, which include his laws or rules and regulations. And it says, your righteousness is eternal righteousness, and your Torah, or teachings and laws and doctrines, is truth. So 
that's what it's saying, that we're worshiping him in spirit and in truth. And I'm worshiping him in spirit when it comes to the Passover because what we should be doing is going to Jerusalem uh, to to honor the king and honor God there, but the temple's not built. So we do it in spirit. We spiritually worship him and do the best we can to keep Passover. That's what that's talking about. And we use the truth, which is the Torah, the teachings of God, to do that. All right, back to John chapter 4. And, of course, Yeshua, is the, he's the living Torah. He's the word of God. And in verse 24, God is spirit, and worshipers must worship him spiritually and truly. And I just read to you again what the truth is. The truth is all of God's words. Thy word is truth, and John 17, verse 17, is also um, Yeshua. He is the living embodiment of truth. And then also the truth is the written scriptures, the holy scriptures, all of them. Okay, so we understand that. Now, this is interesting. The sacrifices of the new moon, on page 231 of this book. Beside the blowing of trumpets, certain festive sacrifices were ordered to be offered on the new moon. The most appropriately marked, these most appropriately marked, these most appropriately marked the beginning of months, for it is a universal principle in the Old Testament that the first always stands for the whole, the first roots for the whole harvest, the firstborn of the firstlings for all the rest, and if the first roots be holy, the lump is also holy. And so the burnt offerings and the sin offering at the beginning of each month consecrated the whole. These festive sacrifices consisted of two young bullocks, one ram and seven lambs of the first year for a burnt offering and with their appropriate meat and drink offerings, and also of one kid of the goats for a sin offering unto Yahweh. When we pass from these simple scriptural directions to what tradition records of the actual observance of the new moons in the temple, our difficulties increase. But this and New Year's Day are just such feasts in connection with which superstition would most rarely grow up from the notions which the rabbis had that at changes of seasons, divine judges were initiated, modified, or finally fixed. But that's, you know, that's going into something else. But, but basically the point that I want you to understand is that the new moon day was not some day you just passively just ignore. It's something you should keep. You should take the day off if you can. And I'm saying if, but if not, don't be too concerned about that because the new moon is not a Shabbat. But it is a festive day. And you should, uh, if you know how to blow a trumpet, blow a shofar, you should do it. Uh, if uh, I'm sure you could do Bible study on that day. You should have a festive meal. You should have a special meal. And, uh, you know, I know I need, to do, I need to do a better job of observing the day, and I'm going to start doing a better job of observing the day. And I'm sure many of you can do the same. Okay, so that's with, that's, I um, hope I've explained the new moon. Again, the significance of keeping that day. And understand that in Exodus chapter 12, he told he didn't tell Moses to keep the Passover first. What he told him is about the new moon. This is the beginning of months. So the new moon is linked with proper observance of the Passover, knowing when to do it. So it's very important that we keep the day. 
And I think Elohim is revealing to me how important it really is. So the new moon. Okay. And, and realize that the new moon will it does symbolize humanity united together, as that scripture in Isaiah chapter 66, verse 23 reveals. All right, now, some clarification on, because I, I, I listened to a little bit of my Bible study. I don't know why. I guess, you know, you have your good days and bad days. They're not perfect. But anyway, let me just clarify something about the Passover that I should have clarified. And definitely for those who are keeping it, the Armstrong folks that are keeping the Passover on the 13th at evening, and if you're listening to this, you, you need to pay attention to this because just like you, I did the same thing for many years, and I, I really thought that you know Mr. Armstrong was teaching correctly and so forth. And once I started studying the Hebraics of the Bible, and let's understand what Shaul or Paul stated in Romans chapter 3. All right? In verse 1, I'm reading this in a complete Jewish Bible version for clarity's sake. It says, then what advantage has the Jew? So Yahweh, through Shaul, is telling us that the Jew has an advantage. What is the value of being circumcised? Now, let me explain this. You wouldn't understand what he's saying unless you understand Hebraics of the Bible. What I mean by the Hebraics of the Bible, looking at it through the eyes of a Jew. Circumcision, in a lot of cases in Paul's epistles or writings, is referring to Jews and their, and their traditions, the oral law, the Mishnah, the Talmud, and so forth. And I'll, I'll probably have a Bible study in the future explaining what the Talmud and the Mishnah are. Let me just summarize what it is. It lists all the Jewish traditions that are that are based on the Bible. Some, quite frankly, don't make sense. Others make a lot of sense. I would say the majority do the Mishnah, because me and my wife took a course on all their traditions, and many of them do line up with the Bible. But anyway, that's the reason why he says that the Jews have an advantage. And he says, what is the value of being circumcised, meaning what is the value of Jewish tradition? Verse 2, much in every way. In the first place, the Jews were entrusted with the very words of God. Much in every way. So, despite what some people are incorrectly teaching, the Talmud does have some value. Uh, also, the Mishnah has some value to it. And, other, and the other Jewish writings, including the Apocrypha and the Pseudographica, have value to it. How do I know? Because I've gotten some truth from Jewish writings, and I continue to do so to this day. The Jewish Encyclopedia, all kinds of Jewish stuff. <laughs> I, I, my knowledge has increased substantially by realizing that the Jews have an advantage. You can go to Chabad.org, C-H-A-B-A-D-O-R-G. You'll get a wealth of knowledge and information that lines up with the Bible, folks. You can't kick the Jews away from the Bible, folks. You can't do that. You can't do that. And that's what, unfortunately, whether Mr. Armstrong realized it or not, he did. Your Savior that you believe in is a Jew. And to fully understand him, and I'm talking about fully and completely understanding him, you must study Judaism because he was a Jew. And if he state that we know what we worship, he included himself along with the Jews. And really, 
true Christianity is true Judaism, the way Judaism should be taught. That's what it is, without all the errors and and it's not. It's, there's some. There's some significant errors, but I wouldn't say Judaism is riddled with errors. It's not. I mean, there, there's a few significant ones. But you use the apostolic scriptures or the renewed covenant scriptures to weed out the errors of Judaism, incorrect Judaism, or Judaism with flaws, as he stated here. Let me let me quote two scriptures here so that you understand this. Because most people just don't understand the significance of the Jews in this whole thing. You just don't understand. And if you don't understand it, you're not going to completely understand the Bible, folks. Matthew chapter 16. So, I'm going to read this in the King James Version. It says, Jesus said unto Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, I went over last week what leaven means in this context. It's talking about, well, actually, he defined what he was saying here. He was talking about their teachings. And verse 7, and they reason among themselves, saying, It is because we have taken no bread. And, and in verse 8, when Jesus perceived, he said unto them, O you of little faith, why reason you among yourselves because you have bought no bread? Do you not understand, neither... Remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets you took up? Neither the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many baskets you took up. How is it that you do not understand that I spake unto you not concerning bread, that you should beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? And then Matthew 16, verse 12. Then they understood, then understood they how that he bade them not beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the teachings of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, which was two popular sects of Judaism back then. Just like Judaism has five major divisions today, uh, Judaism in the first century did as well, which the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection, and the Pharisees did, among other different types of um, disagreements that they had, but they were still Jews. And he said to be careful. He didn't say not to, to read it, but he said be careful. And in Matthew chapter 23, verse 1, Then spake Jesus to the multitude and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moshe's seat. Now, what is scribes in the original Greek? It means a writer. A scribe is a writer, a scribe or a secretary. So those are people that actually were able to take the Torah and, and write teachings. And that's what the modern Torah teacher should be today. That's what I am. And the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. All right? And it says, let me get back to the scribes, because many people don't understand what a scribe is. Uh, I'm looking in the Word Study Dictionary or the Word Study book here. And it's called the Complete Word Study Dictionary, rather. I was right. It means to write. A scribe or writer, such was in public service among the Greeks and acted as a reader of legal and state papers. A scholar. So, yeah, I, I guess I would be a scholar, okay, as far as the Bible is concerned and, and other things as well. <laughs> a scholar is a writer um, of specific topics. But in Ezra, chapter 7, 
starting in verse 10. For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. So now this is the copy of the letter that the king Asaterus gave unto Ezra the priest, the scribe, even a scribe of the words of the commandments of the Lord. So that's what I am. I'm a scribe. I'm a writer. And I do write articles or epistles. That's what a letter means, an epistle. Of the commandments of the Lord and of the statutes to Israel. That's the definition of a scribe, folks. And the scribe prepares himself to write or seek the law of God and to do it and to teach Israel the statutes and judgments. So I just want to define to you what a scribe is. So the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. In verse 3, All therefore whatsoever they bid you observe, observe and do, but do not ye after their works, for they say and do not. So as long as they are sitting in Moses' seat, as long as they're doing what Moses told them to do, then you should listen to what they're saying. So in other words, if what they're teaching lines up with Moses and what he wrote, and the other scriptures, then you should believe it. If not, don't believe it. Because the Pharisees had a bad habit, folks. And there's there's a lot of other denominations that have a bad habit of putting their own tradition that's not based on the Bible into the scriptures, and then the scriptures are confusing the people because of it. Let's turn to Mark chapter 7, verse 1. Then came together unto him the Pharisees and certain of the scribes, which came from Jerusalem, in verse 2 of Mark chapter 7. And when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is to say, with unwashed hands, they found fault. Now, there's nowhere in the Bible where it says, Thou shalt not eat food with dirt. Okay, there's nowhere in the Bible, but this is, I think even today, this is a Jewish tradition. That's based on their oral law which is found, I think, in the Mishnah and also in the Talmud. But this is not something in the Bible. In verse 3, For the Pharisees and all the Jews, except they wash their hands, often eat not, holding the tradition of the elders. See, that's the tradition of the elders, which is a part of the oral law. But it's not based on what the Bible says. In verse 4, And when they came from the market, except they wash, they eat not, and many other things there be which... They have received a hold on the washing of cups and pots and brazen vessels and of tables and all this insignificant stuff. Anyway, verse 5. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why walk not thy disciples according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashing hands? And then in verse 6 of Mark chapter 7, he answered and said unto them, Well has Elijah prophesied of you hypocrites, as it is written, These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Howbeit in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Verse 8, For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men as the washing of pots and cups and many other such things you do. So that's the rule, folks. If any teaching, whether it's Judaism, whatever, if it goes against the doctrines and teachings of the entire Bible, then you are not to obey it. You're supposed to throw it away, flush it in the toilet stool. That's what you need to do. 
Don't allow man's teaching to lay aside the commandment of God. You take hold of the commandment of God, and you lay aside the commandments of men, the teachings of men that go against the commandments of God. That's what you do. All right, so I hope I've explained that clearly. Now, getting back to the confusion of when Passover, when when the Passover sacrifice is eaten. Now, as I explained to you before, Armstrong thought he talked correctly about this, but he did not. And there's one significant scripture that puts an end to all this in a, in a much simple fashion. Let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 16. Starting in verse 1. I'm going to read this whole thing so you understand the context. I'm going to read Deuteronomy 16, 1 to 5. Observe, in the King James, Observe the month of Aviv, and keep the Passover unto the Lord thy God. For in the month of Aviv, the Lord, which is the first month of the, of the real new year, in the spring, the Lord thy God brought thee forth out of Egypt by night. Verse 2. Thou shalt therefore sacrifice the Passover unto the Lord thy God of the flock and the herd in the place which the Lord shall choose to place his name there. Verse 3. Thou shalt eat no leavened bread with it seven days. So he's talking about the entire uh, seven days of unleavened bread. Thou shalt, thou shalt, I mean, I'm sorry. Thou shalt eat no leavened bread with it seven days. Shall thou eat unleavened bread therewith. You know, you have to be patient with me with the King James here. <laughs> the bread of affliction, for thou camest forth out of the land of Egypt in haste, that thou mayest remember the day when thou camest forth out of the land of Egypt all the days of thy life. Verse 4. And there shall be no leavened bread seen with thee in all thy coast seven days, neither shall there anything of the flesh which thou sacrifice. The first day at even. Okay? So this one verse shows us when we eat the Passover sacrifice. We eat it on the first day at even. The first day of the feast, which is the 15th day of the month. And that first day begins at evening. Now, why did Mr. Armstrong... And other people that teach this, how come they don't refer you to this scripture? You know, I, I don't. I hope that he was being sincere about it. But this scripture easily proves that the Passover meal is eaten in the evening on the first day of the seven days of unleavened bread. So that this is very clear. Very clear. And here's here's another thing for you to understand. In Leviticus chapter 23, when 14 at evening means the 15th day. And for proof of that, let's look at uh, the following here. When it when God talks about the day of Yom Kippur or the day of, of, of atonement. And I hope people who have followed Mr. Armstrong are listening to this because... This this is some clarification that you need here. That I don't think any of your leaders are going to going to tell you because they think they they're, they're right about what they're teaching, but they're not. Leviticus chapter twenty two verse twenty seven. And on the tenth day of the seventh month, 
there shall be a day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation or assembly unto you, and you shall afflict your souls and offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord. So we know that the day of atonement is in the seventh month, the tenth day of the month. Now, let's look at this significant scripture here. Leviticus chapter 23, verse 32. It shall be unto you a Shabbat, or Sabbath of rest, and you shall afflict your souls in the ninth day of the month at evening. So here is scriptural proof that the ninth day of the month at evening is the tenth day of the month, from even unto evening, because evening begins a day. So the ninth day of the month at evening is the tenth day of the month, because if you go back, Leviticus chapter 23, verse 27, also on the tenth day of the seventh month there shall be a day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation unto you, and you shall afflict your souls. And if you go to Leviticus chapter 23, verse 32, it states, It shall be unto you a Sabbath of rest, and you shall afflict your souls in the ninth day of the month at evening. Ninth day of the month at evening is the tenth day of the month. It's the tenth day of the month, folks. All right? And that's, that's something that you need to understand. Uh, the Passover does not begin the 13th at evening. It begins at the 14th at evening, which is the 15th day of the month. Uh, the Jews have been keeping that day correctly, despite what you may think about it. They've been keeping it correctly for many years, and you need to start keeping it correctly. After all, Yeshua stated that we know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews, which means that there can't be a, 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 it can't be a whole bunch of error in how they keep the holy days, folks. There is some error, but it's not a lot of it. I know. I've been keeping it myself correctly. All right? So let, let's understand that. Let's understand that, and, and let's believe what the Bible tells you, not what some man tells you, unless the man is backing up what he's teaching through the Scriptures. That's what you have to do. That is the general rule whenever you listen to folks like me or anyone else. You need to make sure that we're teaching based on the Scriptures. Okay, you have to to understand that. And I'm trying to find the Scripture. Um, let me go to this website here. I, I want to find the Scripture, too, that explains... Um, where is it here? Yeah, Exodus uh, 12, verse 18. Exodus 12, verse 18. Exodus 12, verse 18. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month, at evening, which is the 15th, the beginning of the 15th, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening, which is the, what, the 22nd day. All right? So let's understand that. And then another thing that the Armstrongians are confused on is the night to, meet up, the night to be much observed, which was observed yesterday. What the night to be much observed is, is the Passover sacrifice, the the day when you ate the Passover. That is the night to be much observed. It's not a, a separate day, a, a separate celebration. And I think it's in the Jewish study. If not, you know, I have something else from Ramban, which is a Jewish scholar that explains this beautifully. But uh, hopefully we won't need Rambam's explanation here. I can find it here. 
Let's see. Um, yeah, here it is, right here. Yeah, and this verse here that, and I'm reading this in the Jewish uh, Study Bible, for clarity's sake here. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 42, it says that that was for the Lord a night of vigil to bring them out of the land of Egypt. That same night is the Lord's one of vigil for all the children of Israel throughout the ages. Now, it's translated vigil here. Uh, in the King James Version, it is stated the night night to be much observed. So let me read this. This is the reason why, again, you have to go by uh, Jewish teachings here to, to really understand the Bible completely. Vigil. And Hebrew means shimmerim. And I think that word is translated. Let me let me take a look here. Um Yeah. Observance. But that and Hebraically that word means vigil. And it means to watch, guard, observe. It says in rabbinic Hebrew it means guarding, care. That is the meaning here. This verse may represent an interpretation of the word Pesach. The sense would be that God guarded the Israelites from the destroyer on the night of the Exodus and will guard them against malevolent forces on the anniversaries of this night. Okay, so it was a night of God's protection of Israel at the Exodus. So in the future, it will be a night of Israel's observance of the Pesach service or sacrifice. So that's all that this is saying, that the night to be much observed is the, the night where you ate the Passover. The translation, the translation vigil implies that it was a night of God's vigilance, protecting Israel or of Israel's vigilance, waiting for God to deliver them, taking for the Lord, a night of vigil as a night of waiting for the Lord. And in the future, it will be a night of wakefulness for Israel to offer the Pesach sacrifice, a night of vigil in honor of the Lord. So that's what the night to be much observed is. It's not a separate feast that you just gather together and you just have a meal. No, it's, it's, it's a lot more significant than that, folks. Okay, it's a lot more significant than that. And unfortunately... That has been taught incorrectly in all the splinter churches of, of Mr. Armstrong, I think. I may, and maybe some of them are teaching it correctly, but but unfortunately a lot of them have been led astray about how to observe the Passover. And, you know, me being a Catholic, uh, the way you guys do Passover is just, <laughs> it's, it's really depressing. Uh, it's like a Catholic mass, and because and, and, uh, I know I used to be a Catholic. And that's not the way. It's a joyous celebration. You're you're celebrating the fact that Yeshua died for us. So it's not to be something that that is a you know uh, something you mourn and so forth. It's, it's not it's not a day. Uh, it's it's not a day where you're just uh, totally just sad. It's not it's nothing to be sad about the fact that Yeshua sacrificed. Now it's sad that he got beat, but hey, he 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 was victorious. So it's really celebrating his victory. And his victory has everything to do with your salvation, our salvation. 
So states here, I'm trying to find something from this. Um, Yeah, right here it says in, in page, on page 157 of Ramban, Nachmanides, which uh, he was a Jewish uh, scholar, Ramban, R-A-M-B-A-N, page 157 of his commentary. It states here that this same night as an, is a night of watching unto the eternal. Now, he, he states that it's a night of watching, and he knew, he, he knew uh, Hebrew unto the eternal for all the children of Israel throughout their generation. The intent of this is that this night set aside by God to bring Israel out of Egypt is unto the eternal. That is to say, it is to be sanctified to his name. It is a night of watching for all children of Israel throughout their generations, meaning that they are to observe it by worshiping him throughout, by worshiping him through the eating of the Passover offering, the remembering of the miracles and the reciting of praise and thanksgiving to his name, just as he said, and thou shalt keep this ordinance. And he further said, observe the month of Aviv and keep the Passover. Okay, so this is interesting that uh, that's what this is talking about. All right, so I just want to clarify that about the new moon and the Passover. One other thing, too, when the scriptures state... um, in Exodus, where it says the sacrifices should be done at dawn or in evening, is talking about between the two evenings. And between the two evenings is talking about um, the way the Jews understood that during the time of the temple, from 3 to 5 o'clock. So uh, that specific part of it between the, the the first evening was in the afternoon. So that's the way to understand that. I, I didn't clarify that, unfortunately, in the last Bible study that I gave. And I apologize for that. This is tough what I do here. <laughs> Sometimes I forget to say certain things. So, And yeah, uh, in Exodus 12, verse 6, and each and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month, and the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. That means between the two evenings, and a, a, during that particular period of time, there was no temple, so they, they did it pretty quickly, maybe a couple of hours before the sunset. But when the temple was built, they did it in the afternoon, around three o'clock, three to five o'clock. This is verified by Josephus when you look up this particular scripture. Uh, he has a reference to that, and he stated that it was between uh, 3 to 5 o'clock that they started sacrificing the lambs before the sun sets. And this was on the 14th day of the month, which is called the Preparation Day uh, in, in the uh, Gospels, and particularly in John. Uh, they were preparing uh, to keep the first day of unleavened bread. And you do that by preparing the Passover sacrifice. There's the Passover sacrifice, and then you have the first day of unleavened bread, which is initiated in the evening when you eat the Passover lamb, at the 14th at evening, which is the 15th day. And to summarize all this, in Numbers chapter 33, Numbers chapter 33, verse 3, it says, And they departed from Ramses in the first month, on the 15th day of the month, on the morrow, on the morrow, 
simply means in the morning after the Passover sacrifice of the children of Israel. So they did go out in the morning. Uh, remember, he did tell them in Exodus chapter 12 to stay in their in their rooms until the morning. Although at midnight, after they ate the Passover sacrifice, uh, that's when Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and told them to leave. And so they began preparing to leave at around midnight. But they did not leave, obviously, out of their, their rooms until the morning. Because that's what this scripture proves here in Numbers 33, verse 3. And they departed from Ramses in the first month on the 15th day of the, of the first month, on the morrow, or in the morning, after the Passover sacrifice, the children of Israel went out with a high hand in the sight of all the Egyptians. Okay? All right, so I hope I've uh, clarified that. Now, we're going to talk about the first fruits, Yom Bikurim, Bikurim, rather. And... What does Easter has to do with this day? Many people think that Easter is a day that God approves of. Well, first of all, they don't understand the origin of Easter and what it represents. First of all, you can look at any encyclopedia and it will tell you what it, what it represents. But in Acts 12, verse 4, the word Easter is used. And that is an incorrect translation of that word in the King James Version. That word Easter should be translated Pesha in the Greek, and it means the Passover, the festive or special sacrifices connected with it. So, And this is Acts 12, verse 4. And when he had apprehended him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four uh, quaternions of soldiers to keep him intending after Easter. This should be after Passover to bring him forth to the people. So that's an incorrect translation, which proves that the King James Version is not a 100% uh, accurate translation. It's, it's a good one, but it does have uh, certain translation errors, and that's one of them. But the Holy Spirit will lead you into all truth. All right, so first of all, let me address this Easter thing, because what, let me ask you a question. What does bunny rabbits and eggs have to do with the resurrection of Christ? Uh, Easter... That's what Easter is all about. It's about the resurrection of Christ. And and what is bunny rabbits and eggs and so forth, what does that have to do with um, the resurrection of Christ? Well, hopefully you realize that it has nothing to do with the resurrection of Christ, not one thing. And uh, this excellent book, Israel's Feast and Fullness by Bataya Wiltum, uh, simply explains the, the origin of uh, Easter. You can look this up. I mean, this is so easily, especially in this information age that uh, Elohim revealed to Daniel in Daniel 12, verse 4, that uh, information would be, knowledge shall be increased. And that's definitely through the Internet today. Uh, on, in this excellent book by um, Bataya Wilton, Israel Feast in Their Fullness, I suggest you get it and read it. Uh, page 166, it states here, actually in page 21. I'll just start from the beginning. Page 165, A Day of Promise. Yom Habikarim, Yom Habikarim, the Feast of the Wave Sheaf, or the First Root, speaks of our promise of eternal life. But if so, why are we properly, why are we not properly honoring this all-important day? 
An oversimplified answer might be that both the houses of Israel continue to be at war with one another, and their fighting gets in the way of, of the celebration to which we have been called. As we know, in the first century there was much enmity between the Jewish people who did not believe Yeshua was the Messiah and those who chose to follow him. Jewish believers were thrown out of the synagogues, which led to an animosity, plus the Jewish people, few as they might be, proved to be a humiliating thorn in the sight of the mighty Rome, Judas' oppressor, which also led to a different type of animosity. Caught in the mix of these charged emotions were those who wanted to follow the Messiah of Israel. As the church grew and a number of Roman believers began to outnumber the Jewish believers, the Roman Emperor Constantine, whose Christian faith, uh, quote, end of quote, Christian faith, is questioned by many, began to convene a council and make decisions against anything that was perceived as being Jewish. Chief, and this was the origin of how Judaism was destroyed out of Christianity, basically. Uh, the Jewishness of Christianity was taken out by Constantine. He originated that. Chief among the issues he addressed was when to celebrate the resurrection. And then subheading, an untimely recipe. Constantine ultimately decreed that the resurrection would be celebrated on the Sunday following the full moon after the spring equinox. Thus, the church history of Easter celebrations began. So this is interesting that the full moon observance is linked with Easter celebrations. But anyway, thus the church history of Easter celebrations began. Let us add to this mix that the fact that Messiah Yeshua said he would be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights, speaking of his body, he said to his detractors, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Thus, those who wanted to honor his resurrection felt three days were essential to the timing of this celebration. Let us also add that the timing of Shavuot, or Pentecost, and this, and this is inexorably tied to being celebrated on the morrow of the Sabbath. And in the year in which Yeshua was offered, it worked out after three days and three nights, he presented himself in the heavenlies on the morrow after the Sabbath. I'll go over that. Uh, shortly here. Let us also add that 50 days later on Shavuot, Pentecost, he poured out his spirit on, on his disciples who were waiting and praying in the upper room in the temple area. Now let us add another key ingredient. The timing of the feast is based on the appearance of the new moon and its lunation uh, varies between 29 and 30 days. So Passover can occur on different days of the week. So, I just wanted to bring that up uh, in regards to the origin of Easter. And I just wanted to point out here what she states here on page 168. As for celebrating that event, if we will look through a lens of mercy, we see that the Christian celebration of the resurrection, apart from its errant traditions, is a type of first fruit celebration. So really what people are celebrating tomorrow, Easter, um, Catholics and all the rest of the Christians is really the day of first fruits, folks. That's what it is. And sharing our, our faith from this perspective might help us to better communicate with Christians who do not yet understand the feast. However, we also must recognize that the ancient pagan cult of Ishtar is the source for the word Easter. And that day has largely come to feature a parade of bunnies with baskets of colored eggs. Rabbits and eggs are fertility symbols, and Ishtar was the ancient Azurian Babylonian goddess of love, fertility, and war. We cannot support such practices. So it's linked with paganism. So that's why I don't celebrate Easter thinking about um, uh, bunny rabbits and eggs because it has its link to paganism. On the other hand, Messiah's resurrection from the dead changed all of history. 
as we return to our roots, we want to remember, and we have to return those Christians that are listening to me now. You have to learn how to return to your Jewish roots. After all, your Lord and Savior is a Jew, and you must walk like he walked, as 1 John 2, verse 6 states. In John 14, verse 6, he's the way, the truth, and the life. Way means the, the way you live. He, he's, he's, he's the perfect human being, and we must follow the perfect human being. He is the last Adam. So he's the way mankind should be. That's what Adam means in Hebrew. So we must follow him. He's the example for all of mankind. And if whatever he did, we should do the same. And, if, and we know that he's God. He's a part of God. He's God. He's the word of God. If, he, uh, if you turn to Ephesians, chapter 5, verse 1, Be ye therefore followers of God, Elohim, as dear children. So we should follow him. We should follow him. And many people don't understand it. They think they can, they can just worship someone and not do everything that they've done to the best of their ability. And that's impossible. You can't do that. You can't do that, folks. Okay. Whatever the Messiah did was good, so you should do the same thing he did. <laughs> he says, follow me. I'm the example. Let's turn to John 14. John 14, verse 6. Jesus said unto them, I am the way. That word way in the Greek means hold us. It means progress. Mode or means. He's the journey. He's the truth and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. So you'll never get to see the Father or be around him without him. It's going to be through him that you're going to be able to have access to the Father. Okay. So I hope I've explained that to you. So we understand where Easter came from, and if you want a thorough dissertation about it or detailed analysis of it, then you could do your research yourself. Just type in Easter Pagan on Google. You'll get all kinds of information about Easter and how pagan it is and, and why you should not celebrate the Day of First Fruits as Easter. Okay, but let's stop talking about Easter now. Let's focus on this. Easter has a lot to do with um, getting Judaism out of your system, getting the true Judaism, which Jesus lived, and which some Messianic Jews are living today. The true Judaism, realizing that Yeshua is the Messiah, and that we should keep all Jewish tradition that lines up with the Bible. That's the true Judaism that we all must must follow. We have to understand something, folks. And, and, and let me explain this to you, because I don't think people get this. The world will be ruled by Jews, folks. Folks, okay? Let me let me prove this to you. Let me turn to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. Then answered Peter and said unto him, Behold, we have forsaken all and followed thee. What shall we have therefore? In verse 28, And Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that ye which have followed me 
end of regeneration when the Son of Man shall sit in his throne of his glory, ye also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So all of the apostles were Jews, and they're going to be ruling underneath Christ, folks, the Messiah. Now, in Zechariah chapter 8, Zechariah chapter 8 is a very significant scripture. Verse 23. Actually, let's start in verse 20 of Zechariah chapter 8. Thus says the Lord of hosts, It shall yet come to pass that there shall come people, and the inhabitants of many cities, and the inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go speedily to pray before the Lord to seek the Lord of hosts. I will go also. Yes, many people and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to pray before the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days it shall come to pass that ten men shall take hold out of all the languages of the nations, even shall take hold of the skirt of him that is a Jew, saying, We will go with you, for we have heard that God, or Elohim, is with you. All right, so that tells you the significance of the Jews first, folks. The Jews will be ruling the world, so we better get in line. And then also in Romans, Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of the Messiah, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first, and also of the Greek. Okay, so the gospel is for the Jew first and then for everyone else. That's what your your Bible says. So we've got to stop bashing the Jews and leaving the Jews out of the picture here. If you do that, you, you're going to have not a thorough, you're not going to have a complete understanding of the entire Bible, folks. So you must include the Jews in the picture. After all, your Lord and Savior is a Jew. All right, so let's let's understand that. And he's the same... Yesterday, today, and forever in Hebrews 13, verse 8. All right, so I've talked about Easter and talked about the importance of understanding that Yeshua is a Jew, that the world would be ruled by Jews, and that we better get in line with their teachings and doctrines that are in line with the Bible. All right. So let's talk about uh, the first fruits of Yom Bikurim which means the day of the wave sheaf. And let's understand the significance of, of um, what first fruits really is about. It's about the resurrection of Yeshua, who was the first fruits of many first fruits. That's what it represents. All right, so let's look at the commandment to keep first fruits. It's found in uh, Leviticus. How much time do I have left here? 48 minutes. Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus chapter 23, beginning in verse 10 in the King James Version. It says, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When you come into the land which I give unto you, you shall reap the harvest thereof, and you shall bring a sheaf. And that sheaf means omer. And it means uh, a dry measure, a measurement of uh, of the barley, as you're going to find out here in a minute of the first fruits of your harvest unto the priest. 
and he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted for you on the morrow after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And you shall offer that day when you wave the sheaf a he lamb. This is interesting. This is a lamb without blemish, and Yeshua was a lamb without blemish of the first year for a burnt offering unto the Lord. And the meat offering thereof, two-tenth deals of fine flour mingled with oil, an offering made by fire unto the Lord for a sweet savor and a drink offering, therefore shall be of wine the fourth part of him. And ye shall eat neither bread nor parched corn or green ears until the selfsame day that you have bought an offering unto your God. It shall be a statue forever throughout your generations and all your dwellings. All right, so we're not supposed to eat any bread, no parched corn, nor green ears until the selfsame day that you have bought an offering unto your God. It shall be a statue forever throughout your generations and all your dwellings. All right, so uh, we're going to talk about um, Shavuot next week and how to do the count, although I'm going to get into a little bit of that today because there's been a controversy, and it's still a controversy for many years now, of which day to start the count, to start the, the, the Omer count of the sheaf. But I'm going to go into more detail about what first fruits is, and then also the um, the sheaf itself. All right. So first of all, on page one fifty seven of this book, uh, Israel feasts in, in the fullness. Yom Habikarim, the day of the wave sheaf. It says, on the day of the wave sheaf in ancient Israel, the priests weighed the sheaf of the first fruits of the barley harvest before the Almighty. So this is part of the barley harvest. This day is called Yom Habikarim, or the day of the wave sheaf, or the feast of the harvest. Yom means day, and Bikarim is plural for bicker, which speaks of the first ripe fruits of a crop. All first crops were uh, resheathed or in head or beginning, but this was the first offering of the year. So this was the, the, the first offering of the year of the new year, in the spring. It was the first of the first fruits Israel offered. They could not keep this day in the wilderness where they ate manna from heaven. They could not honor it until they entered into the land and stopped eating manna and began to eat of its produce. They were given an omer, which is the sheaf of manna in the wilderness, and an omer sheaf of barley began their first fruits offerings in the land. And I just read to you um, Yom Hapikarim. Uh, in Leviticus chapter 23, verse 10 to 14. Now the subheading on page 158. Fulfilled by a single priest. This day depicts a priest standing alone and waving a sheaf before Yahweh so the congregation might be accepted. This depicts our Messiah, who is a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The priest portrays Yeshua, just as it does the Omer sheaf being waved, for Yeshua is the hidden manna. He also is Messiah, the firstfruits. And uh, these scriptures, uh, I guess we can turn to them here uh, to prove all these things, um, as we should. And uh, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 27. Hebrews uh, chapter 7, verse 27. says, Who needeth nor day... Uh, who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once, and he offered of himself. And I'm going to prove to you that he did that 
uh, after he was resurrected, he ascended to the throne room in heaven. I know some people are incorrectly teaching that didn't happen, but when you understand that Yeshua is in all the holy days, <laughs> he's in all the days and the feasts of God, then you understand that, that that's exactly what happened. Okay, and he's the first fruits in first Corinthians chapter fifteen. First Corinthians chapter fifteen. Starting in verse twenty three. But every man in his own order, Christ the first fruits. Okay? So he is a part of the first fruits. It's the beginning of the sacrifice. I know some people are teaching is Christ and then there were other first fruits, and there was. Uh, other people were resurrected, but there's a question of whether or not those people were taken up to heaven along with him. That's still another Bible study, but uh, um, that's for future conversation and, and, and future speculation. But anyway, Yeshua fulfills the day of the way sheep in many ways. His offering was to be weighed on the day after the Sabbath, meaning the first day of the week, Sunday. After appearing in the garden to Mary Magdalene on that day, he appeared before our Father in heaven on our behalf. He presented himself to the Father on that day so that his faithful ones might be accepted, both individually and as his congregation of firstborn ones. Okay, and we're going to go over that here. But what I want to talk about first is the controversy uh, about when to start the count of the Omer because that's important. Well, actually, I want to go over what the sheaf is, basically, page 159 of this book. We first read of a sheaf in Scripture in the story of Joseph's dreams. In it, Joseph saw 11 sheaves bow down before his, his sheaf. The 11 sheaves represented his brothers who would ultimately have to bow before him. As we know, the, uh, the sheaf or an omer. As we know, the dream came true when Joseph's brothers had to bow before him after he had become the second man in Egypt and was one who could save them from starvation. So he was a type of Messiah. From this we see that the sheaves, plural, can represent a person or persons. A literal sheaf speaks of a batch that is tied together. The wave sheaf that was to be presented on Yom Habikarim was called an Omer. Omer comes from Omer, which means to chastise, as if, as if filling blows to gather grain or and bind sheaves together. Here we again see a shadow of our high priest, Yeshua, in that the chastening or the chastening for our well-being fell upon him, Isaiah 53, verse 5. An omer also is a unit of dry measure equal to a tenth of an epath, which equals about 3.5 liters or 3.7 quarts. That's in Exodus 16, verse 36. In this feast, we also see a spirit of giving, for Israel was commanded to leave the occasional forgotten sheaf and the gleanings of the harvest in the corners of the field so that they could be used to feed the stranger, the fatherless, the widow, and the poor. In this way, we see roof gleaning in the fields of Boaz. Not leaving the corners of one's field for the poor to glean, stop the flowing a blessing from Yah's land. This principle helped teach the children of Israel that the joy of the harvest is expressed in the form of charity to others. They are times of giving. And it certainly is. And verse, uh, page 160, it says, The sheaf wave for this first of first fruits offering was barley. On the first day of the week following the regular Shabbat, during the unleavened bread, the, the harvest of the cereal grain began. Sown in the winter, barley was the first grain to ripen in the spring. Because of its deep roots, barley has a tremendous ability to absorb nutrients from the soil, so it gives a healthy boost to those who eat it. Sim uh, similarly, we 
who have received Messiah Yeshua as the Lord are to be firmly rooted in him, that we might be built up healthy and solidly established in our faith. First fruits were the choices of all and were consecrated or or holy unto Yahweh. They were the head, the beginning. The firstborn of man and beast belonged to Yahweh, as did the first fruits of the earth. Some first fruits were presented to the priests, and all were to be offered with thanksgiving and praise unto the giver of all things. And so page 160 here, to fulfill the day of the wave sheep, the celebrant would take the first sheep from the barley harvest to the priest who would then wave or present it before Yah, which means God, in the temple, so the celebrant would be accepted. As it is written, he shall wave the sheep before the Lord for you to be accepted on the day after the Sabbath, which is on a Sunday, the priest shall wave it. This day saw fulfillment in the heavens when Yeshua presented himself as the first of first fruits that we might in turn be accepted. All right, so um, Yeshua's resurrection is a type of the harvest that marked the beginning of our Father's harvest season. We are part of that eternal harvest. and Yeshua, we become fruit that will last for eternity. Yeshua is the firstborn among many brethren. As his brethren, we also have the first fruits of the Spirit, and we groan within ourselves because we are waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, which is the redemption of our body. Our bodies will be changed into spiritual flesh. And the exercise of his will be brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. So this is found in Romans 8, verse 23 to 29, James 1, verse 18, and 1 Corinthians 15, verse 23. All right, so we're also first fruits as well. So you know, we need to understand. Now, what's this controversy? Let me get to this controversy about how to count the omer and so forth for the sheaf because uh, it's an unnecessary controversy, folks. And it's based on whether or not... Now, this year, miraculously, I guess, uh, all the calendars line up. So the next day, tomorrow after the Sabbath, is Sunday. But let me explain what... Orthodox Judaism and other branches of Judaism do to this day. And perhaps some Christian, uh, yeah, I, know, I do know one um, that used to follow Armstrong is doing it incorrectly like the Jews are doing it too. But it's a tradition, folks, and we have to be careful. We have to check and make sure that those Jewish traditions don't lay aside the, the Torah or teachings of God. And if it doesn't, we accept them. If, if they do, we, we reject them. In this case, uh, we need to reject the, the Jewish tradition of on the 16th of Nisan being the time that uh, the wave sheaf is offered, or the start of the of the Omer count. So in Leviticus chapter 23, in verse 15, it states, And ye shall count unto you from the morrow after the Sabbath, from the day that you bought the sheaf of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be complete. Okay, so that is the controversy here. And let me get my Jewish study Bible here. If I can find it here. I just had it here. Okay, here it is. Leviticus chapter 
Okay. And there was a good commentary here about this. I'm trying to find it here. Okay, actually they have the commentary in Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 23, verse 11. He shall elevate the sheep before the Lord for acceptance in, in your behalf. The priest shall elevate it on the day after the Sabbath. Now, in the Jewish study Bible on page uh, 263 here at the bottom and on the next page, 264, for acceptance in your behalf on the day after the Sabbath. This phrase, appearing also in verse 15, became a major source of controversy in Talmudic times, and it still is today. The Pharisee sages claiming that the word Sabbath is used here in its non-specific literal sense, cessation, but does not indicate the weekly Sabbath day, vehemently asserted that the omer, or the sheaf, is presented on the day after the day of rest at the beginning of the matzah, or um, eleven bread, Matzo pilgrimage, namely the 16th of Nisan. Otherwise, a definite article in the phrase of Sabbath would have no reference. Though this view has been accepted by Jewish tradition, the more natural sense of the phrase is that the ceremony was to take place on the first day of the week, Sunday, following the pilgrimage. This was the view of the Balthusians as well as the Quorum sect, while the Samaritans and the Karaites held that the Sunday during the Matzo pilgrimage was intended. Well, actually, the Karaites do it uh, of the natural sense, because uh, I know they're doing it right now that way, is that the ceremony was to take place on the first day of the week, Sunday, following the pilgrimage. Well, actually, the Karaites are doing it correctly. Um, they're doing it... Uh, the point of this, what I'm reading here, is that it should be done on Sunday. That's the point. That's the point I'm trying to make here, according to what it says. It says tomorrow after the Sabbath. The morning after the Sabbath is on a Sunday, folks. So that's, it means exactly what it says. That's the point I'm trying to make here. Okay? So, and to prove this further, uh, Nehemia Gordon made a, a point, and I'm going to make this point too, um, going to Numbers, and then we have to use Joshua and, and, and numbers to, to, to understand this, but how much time do we have left here? 32 minutes, okay. Numbers chapter 33. Numbers chapter 33, verse 3. And they departed from Ramses in the first month on the 15th day of the first month, on the morrow after the Passover. So we know that the morrow after the Passover means the morning of the 15th. Now, Let's understand that. So let, let's go to Joshua, chapter 5, starting in verse 10. And the children of Israel encamped at Gilgal and kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month at evening, which we understand is the 15th day of the month, in the plains of Jericho. And they did eat of the old corn of the land on the morrow after the Passover. So that same phrase, on the morrow after the Passover, we understand that to be the 15th, the beginning of the 15th day. And that is the morning of the 15th day. So they did eat of the old corn of the land, not on the 16th, but on the morrow after the Passover, which is the morning of the 15th. So they ate 
the grain, so they must have, have had the way sheaf offering already. And that was not on the 16th day. So let, let's understand that, that uh, based on the scriptures, the Jews in this case are wrong, stating that the way sheaf offering must be on the 16th at all times. Again, in Joshua 5, starting in verse 10, And the children of Israel encamped in Gilgal and kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month at evening, which is the 15th day, in the plains of Jericho. In verse 11, And they did eat of the old corn of the land on the morrow after the Passover. The morrow after the Passover is the morning of the 15th. So they were already eating the corn of the land, so they must have already done the way sheep offering which was not on the 16th. All right, so that that's using the Bible to prove the Bible. All right, let's getting back to, so we understand that. So that's the end of that controversy, right? So let's go back and get in a little more detail about first fruits, Yom Bikurim, which symbolizes uh, Christ's resurrection. So let's turn to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. John chapter 12, beginning in verse 23. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, and it's in verse 24, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. So he's talking about himself. And then you go down here to verse 32 to 33, and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. This he says, signifying what death he should die. So again, he's, he's talking about himself being a wave sheaf offering, a first fruit. is going to come out of the ground, which he did. He was resurrected. In Matthew chapter 27, Matthew chapter 27, 29 minutes left. Matthew chapter 27, starting in verse 50. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the spirit, and it says ghost, but it really, really should mean spirit. No, it's mistranslated there. Verse 51, And behold, the veil of the temple, the actual temple in Jerusalem at that time, was rent in twain from top to the bottom, and, and the earth did quake, and the rocks rent. In verse 52, And the graves were open, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose, and came out of the graves after his resurrection, and went into the holy city, and appeared unto many. Now, what this represents, folks, um, and this was the graves were open, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose, and they came out of the graves after his resurrection. So when he was resurrected, these bodies in the graves were also resurrected. And then there's a question of whether or not these people were actually resurrected in a spiritual state like Yeshua or not. But what people have correctly taught about this is um actually let me get uh let me put you on hold for a minute I'll be right back
Okay, I'm back, and this is an excellent Bible I recommend anyone get. It's the Companion Bible by Bullinger. And he, I didn't know this, but he actually understood Hebrew, and he has a lot of good Hebrew uh, insight commentary in uh, the scriptures here. So I would highly recommend that you get this and use it on your journey toward understanding the Bible. Uh, and it's in the King James Version, too. Uh, Matthew, chapter 27. Matthew, chapter 27. I think he had a commentary about this here. Let's see. If it's not in this, it was in some other ones that I read it. Let's see. Okay, uh, I think it was in the John he said this. Let me turn to John here. John chapter uh, 20. I think that was the scripture I was going to go to anyway. Let's see. Yeah, John chapter 20. I was going to go to that next. Okay. This is what he says. Um, let me just read this account, and then when I get to that, uh, verse 17, I'll, I'll go into what he said here. Uh, John 20, verse 1, the first day of the week, which is Sunday, folks, that's the first day of the week, comes. It was just coming in the morning. Mary Magdalene early, while it was yet dark, so we know that that uh, he was resurrected before uh, Sunday. He was resurrected uh, Saturday evening, to be precise. But anyway, the first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early, when it was yet dark, until the sub sepulchre, and see if the stone taken away from the sepulchre. She runneth and cometh to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, whom Jesus loved, and said unto him, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulchre, and we know not where they have laid him. Peter therefore went forth, and that other disciple came to the sepulchre. So they ran both together, and the other disciple did outrun Peter and came first to the sepulchre. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying, yet went. he didn't go in. Then comes Simon Peter, following him, and went into the sepulcher, and see if the linen clothes lie. And the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. Then went in also the other disciple, which came first to the sepulcher, and saw and believed. For as yet they knew not the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So they didn't understand he was supposed to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went away again into their own home. But Mary stood without at the sepulcher, weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulcher. And see of two angels in white sitting, the one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. And they say unto her, Woman, why do you weep? She said unto them, Because they have taken away my Lord and I know not where they have laid him. And when she had thus said, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing and knew not that it was Jesus. Now understand, this is all happening on the day of uh, 
first fruits on Yom Bikurim. This is all this was occurring on that day, which is on a Sunday. Tomorrow after the Shabbat or Sabbath. Verse fourteen, and when she had thus said, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing and knew that she didn't know it was Jesus. Verse fifteen, Jesus said to her, Woman, why do you weep? Who are you seeking? She, supposing him to be a gardener, said unto him, Sir, if you have borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. He turned, she turned herself and said unto him, Rabbi, Rabbani, which means master. Verse 17, Jesus said unto her, Touch me not, for I have not yet ascended to my father. And this other translation says, don't, don't Stop holding on to me. Uh, for I am not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brethren and say unto him, I ascend unto my Father, and your Father unto my God and your God. All right, so in verse 17 of this, uh, Bullinger has an interesting commentary here. Uh, he says, Touch me not, do not be holding me. And it says, For this gives the reason for the prohibition. He afterwards allowed the woman to hold him by the feet. On this day, the morrow after the Sabbath, the high priest would be waving the sheaf of the first roots before the Lord. That's found in Leviticus 23, verse 10 to 11. Why he, the first roots from the dead, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 23, would be fulfilling the type by presenting himself before the Father. Now, keep in mind that he stated that he has not yet ascended to the Father. So obviously he ascended to the Father as the way sheaf offering. And, and you read this, in verse 18, Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things unto her. Verse 19, then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, so this was um, Sunday evening, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and said unto them, Peace be unto you. And when he had said so, he showed unto his, to them his hands and his side, then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Then said Jesus to them, Peace be unto you, as my Father has sent me, even though I send you. Okay, so this all happened uh, on the day, m much of this happened on First Ruth or Yom Bikaram or the day of the way sheaf offering. He was the way sheaf offering. And people are teaching also, I know Michael Ruth teaches that uh, it's a possibility that uh, the people that were um, resurrected, they were also part of the sheaf offering, and they were presented to heaven, and they're in heaven today. And that's 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 a possibility. Uh, leave our minds open to that, but that's not something that is required to believe for salvation. Okay, so um, I already read you, read you Hebrews 7, verse 27. He presented himself once for to sacrifice himself for all of mankind before uh, he was presented and accepted before the Father. And Hebrews chapter 9, Hebrews chapter 9, starting in verse 11, For Christ being come a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made by hands, that is to say, not of this building. Verse 12, Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place. And this is the Holy of Holies, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctified to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, 
who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And that's what it's all about, folks. Uh, even the day of first truth is about giving, sharing, and caring. That's that's what it's all about in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse uh, 20. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first truth of them that slept. But since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. So the first truth is the Yom Bikurim of the day of the wave sheep offering of them that slept. Verse 22, for as in Adam all die, even so shall Christ show, so in Christ, or the Messiah shall all be made alive. Verse 23, but every man in his own order, Christ, the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ at his coming. And then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. For he had put all things under his feet. So that's that's what this is, and we'll get into that uh, in another Bible study. But the, the main focus here is first fruits and the resurrection. And he was resurrected, and let's find out basically what kind of resurrection body uh, he had, and what we will have, because we're going to be just like him. In verse 35, it says, But some men, how are the dead raised up, and what body do they come? And then verse 36, Thou fool, that which sowest is not quick and except it die, and that which thou sowest, thou sowest not that, that body that shall be, but bear grain and may chance wheat or some other grain. But God giveth it a body as it hath pleased him, and to every seed his own body. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another of fishes, and another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and bodies terrestrial, but the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the moon, and another glory of the moon. There's one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for one star differs from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown in natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. So we're going to have a spiritual body. We have a spiritual body, just like Yeshua. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. Verse 45, And so it is written, The first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. So he's a quickening spirit, and we will be that too. Verse 46, Howbeit that was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural, and afterward that which is spiritual. Verse 47, The first man is of the earth, earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven, as is the earthy, such as they also that are earthy, and as is the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. In verse 50, now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither does corruption inherit incorruption. Okay, so we will have a spiritual body like Messiah. And I'm trying to get to the scriptures uh, that prove that here, what type of body that he had and so forth, and uh, see if I can find that here in the remaining minutes here that I have. Let's see.
the word flesh here. I know it's in one of the Gospels that he described his composition. Here we go. Luke chapter 24. Luke 24, verse 36. And as they stood, spake, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them, and he said unto them, Peace unto you. Verse 37 of Luke 24. But they were terrified and frightened, and supposed that they had seen a spirit, or a ghost, or, yeah, a spirit, and when he said unto them, Why are you troubled, and why do thoughts arise in your hearts? Behold, my hands and my feet, that is, I myself, handle me and see, for a spirit has not flesh and bones as you see me have. Okay, so he wasn't in his spirit form. But as I read to you that we would have a spiritual body, obviously the spiritual body has some kind of structure, has uh, flesh, but it's not corruptible flesh. It's incorruptible flesh. And, of course, we don't have blood, and he didn't have blood. All right? And then in other parts of the gospel, he he was he vanished. He just vanished out of, uh, let me uh, read one scripture here that says that. There we go. Luke chapter 24, verse 31. Verse 30, rather. And it came to pass as he sat at meat with them, and he took bread, he blessed it, and break and gave it to them. Verse 31 of uh, Luke chapter 24. And their eyes were open, and, and they knew him, and he vanished out of their sight. So we're going to be able to vanish too and, and do all the things that Yeshua did as well. And the Bible calls us first fruits as well in James chapter 1. James chapter 1, verse 18. Of his own will begat be he us, of his own will begat he us with the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So we're the first fruits of his creatures. That's what we are, uh, true believers. All right. And I wanted to go over the, uh, this is pretty interesting about what first fruits are, first of all. And uh, I used to think, and I don't think anymore, because I understand the truth of it, that first fruits was a tithe, and it's not. Um, there, here's some scriptural proof of that. Second Chronicles, chapter 31. Starting in verse uh, 5. And as soon as the commandment came abroad, the children of Israel bought an abundance of the first fruits of corn, wine, and oil, and honey, and all the increase of the field, and the tithe of all things bought they in abundance, or abundantly. So we can see that first fruits is separate from tithing and other offerings. And then uh, Nehemiah, Nehemiah, chapter 10, 
starting in verse 35. It says, And to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of all trees year by year into the house of the Lord. So we know that the first fruits has something to do with vegetation. That's what it has something to do with. And also the firstborn of our sons and our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstlings of our herds and of our flocks to bring to the house of our Lord and to the priests that minister to the house of our God, and that we should bring the first fruits of our dough and our offerings and the fruit of all manner of trees, of wine, of oil, and to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and the tithes of our ground, to the Levites, that the same Levites might have the tithes in all the cities of our... So again, the first fruits are separated from tithes again, which is interesting. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 12, verse 44. And it says, And at the time were some appointed over the chambers for the treasures, for the offerings, for the firstfruits, and for the tithes, to gather them into, out of the fields of the cities, the portions of the law, for the priests and the Levites, for Judah rejoice, for the priests and the Levites that waited. So again, you have this separation of the firstfruits from the tithes. Now the question is, how much should we contribute of the firstfruits? Well, let's, let's get into this excellent book that I have. Um... The Temple is Ministry and Services by Alfred Edersheim, or Sheem. And let me find that section here that it, where it talks about the uh, first roots. And it's got to do reading it here. I don't know what I did with it. Let's see. Oh, yeah, page 305. So it's page 305 of this book. On page 302, let's start there. Properly speaking, the offering and the first fruits belong to the class of religious and charitable contributions. So the um, first fruits is not a tie, but it's a class of religious and charitable contributions and falls within our present scope only in, in so far as certain of them had to be presented in the temple at Jerusalem. Two of these first fruits offerings were public and national. The first omer, which we just talked about, the first offering of the new year, on the second day of the Passover. Well, it's not on the second day of the Passover, but it's on the uh, Sunday after the Shabbat. And the wave loaves at, at Pentecost. The, the other two kinds of first fruits are Risha, Rishith. The first, the beginning, were offered on the part of each family and of every individual who had possession in Israel according to the divine Directions in all kinds of scriptures, Exodus 22, verse 29, 23, verse 19, 34, verse 26, Numbers 15, verse 20, 21, Numbers 18, verse 12, and 13, Deuteronomy 18, verse 4, and Deuteronomy 26, verses 2 to 11, where the ceremonial, the ceremonial to be observed in the sanctuary is also described. Authorities distinguish between Bikurim, or first who is offered in their natural state in a Teruma, Bought not as raw products, but in a prepared state, as flour, oil, wine, etc. Okay, so this is interesting. And he says here that the Bikurim were only presented in the temple and belonged to the priesthood 
the officiating at the time, why the tomorrow might be given to any priest in any part of the land. So again, this is uh, interested, and this is based on uh, Deuteronomy 8, verse 8. Only the following seven were to be regarded as the produce of the holy hand, from the alone bickering were due, the wheat, the barley, the grapes, the figs, the pomegranates, olives, and dates. And that's in Deuteronomy. How much time I have left here? Six minutes. Deuteronomy 8, verse 8. Well, if I go over, I go over, so I may go over. And if I go over, I'm going to be cut off, and uh, you'll be able to listen to the rest of it uh, in the archives. But anyway, Deuteronomy 8, verse 8. A land of wheat and barley and vines and fig trees and pomegranates and land of oil and honey. So that's what was considered the first fruits according to uh, Jewish tradition. Now, this is interesting. It says the amount of bicarium was not, or first fruits was, was not fixed in the divine law any more than of the wheat, which was to be left in the corners of the fields in order to be gleaned by the poor, which is interesting again. And it says right here, the Mishnah enumerates five things of which the amount is not fixed in the law. The corners of the field for the poor, the bicarium, the sacrifices on coming up to the feast, pious works on which, however, not more than one-fifth of one's property was to be spent, and the study of the law. Similarly, these these are the things of which a man eats the fruit in this world, but their possession passes into the next world. Literally, the capital continues for the next, as in a world we only enjoy the interest. To, to honor father and mother, pious works, peacemaking between a man and his neighbor, and the study of the law, which is equivalent to them all. Okay? So this, all these amounts are not fixed. And it's interesting that uh, this is linked to um, honoring the father and pious works and so forth and peacemaking. All right. So anyway, in page 303 of this book, the amount of the bicarium was not fixed in the divine law any more than of the wheat which was to be left in the corners of the field in order to be gleaned by the poor. But according to the rabbis, in both these cases, one-sixtieth was to be considered a minimum. Okay, so that that's interesting. Now what I'm going to do is get into the the actual order of how you give because Messiah stated that we should give, give, and should be given to you. So it's a commandment, not a suggestion. So this is the the way the Jews have always done it, uh, traditionally. Especially in old times. Uh, it says, thus, on page 305, thus the prescribed religious contributions of every Jewish layman at the time of the Second Temple were as follows. Bikurim and Temur, which is uh, contributions, and Bikurim is the first root, say 2%. From the first of the fleece, at least five shekels weight. From the first of the dough, say 4%. Corners of the field, the poor say 2%. The first or Levitical tie, 10%. The second or festival tie to be used at the feast in Jerusalem. And in the third and the sixth years, where the sixth year, that's a Jewish tradition. I see in the scriptures it says the third year of every seven-year cycle. Uh, to be the poor man's tie, 10%. The first things of all animals, either in kind or money value, five shekels for every Firstborn son, provided he were the first child of his mother and free of blemish, and the half shekel of the temple tribute. Together, these amount is certainly more than a fourth of the return uh, which an agricultural population would have. And it is remarkable that the law seems to regard Israel as intended to be only an agricultural people. That's not so remarkable because uh, prior to the 18th century, that's why all people around the world were agrarian. They uh, they were farmers, and that all changed with the invention of the uh, steamboat. No contribution being provided 
for from trade or merchandise. Beside these prescribed, there were, of course, all manner of voluntary offerings, pious works, and above all, the various sacrifices which each, according to the circumstances of piety, would bring in the temple of Jerusalem. So the point of the matter is that the first fruits it does represent that you should give, and you should give according to what you have. Of course, God has a rule about the tithes, that it should be 10% of your increase, which 10% of your increase is what you have left over after your cost of labor, whether you're working for somebody or working uh, for an employer. In both situations, you have a cost of labor. And so I'm going to re, re um, I'm going to uh, modify my article that I've written on tithes and offering to explain what first fruits are, because I originally thought that first fruits was a tithe, and it's not. So I will do that. So anyway, that is the teaching today on uh, Yom Bikarim, or the way sheaf offering. I tried to teach this as simply as I can. That's my um, my style here uh, when I um, conduct Bible studies here. So if you have any other questions or concerns about this teaching, please email me at mercifulserviceofgod.com. I'm going to, uh, when I had the time on my blog, mercifulletters.com, put these teachings on there so that you can go and share this with other people and and share the uh, blog entries with other people on the on the website. So, um, happy uh, first fruits. I'm not going to call it Easter because it has pagan roots. But happy uh, first fruits, Yom Bikarim. Happy day of the way sheep offering. Remember that this symbolizes the resurrection of Yeshua. He's the first of the first fruits. Uh, he is a first fruit, and he and he was the way sheep offering. He presented himself before the Lord our Father. And we will all present ourselves to him in the future as well. So may Elohim bless and keep you, and God willing, I'll be available to teach you next week. Malachi chapter 4 For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. And ye shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, saith the Lord of hosts. Remember ye the law of Moses my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel, with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. 